I have a friend who teaches at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Earl Lavender, and he often likes to say intentionality is the first spiritual discipline. Intentionality is the first spiritual discipline. And what he means by that, in part, is that almost anything, if done with the right intention, can become formative in your life. Almost anything, if done with intention, can be formative in your life. But even the most powerful spiritual discipline, if it's not done with intentionality, will be useless. And so, uh, in this session, we're going to talk really around that idea of intentionality and uh, also dive a little deeper into the issue of a, a piety, a relationship with God that is genuine and, and what that looks like. And also related to this is kind of the, what's the goal? What, what are we engaging in spiritual disciplines for? Uh, what, what is the, the goal? And so touching a little bit back on what we started t- touching on in the first session there. Uh, James K.A. Smith has a, a wonderful book on spirituality and ultimately on spiritual disciplines called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love. And he, he begins it with this story from a Russian film called Stalker. And the, the, the movie follows three people, Professor, Ryder, and Stalker. And they're making their way to a place that's called The Room. And in The Room, something very unusual takes place. If you go into the room, then you will receive your heart's desire. Whatever it is that your heart truly desires, you will receive. And so as they're making their way to the room, professor and writer hesitate. Because they begin to think, well, what if I don't really want what my heart truly desires? Because your heart may desire something that in the end you really don't want. And so it's, it's this interesting uh, debate about what is it that we really want out of life? What is our heart's true desire? And if we were given it, would we be happy? Would we want what it is our heart truly wants? And in the, in the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, Jesus talks about this, especially in chapter 6. He's talking about essentially what we want, what we desire, the the reward that we're looking for out of the spiritual life, out of spiritual disciplines. And he issues kind of a warning in this part of the Sermon on the Mount because in essence he says, you may get what you want, but you may not like what you get. Because what your heart truly desires may not be what you, what you think. And so here in chapter 6, he gives us an opportunity to think about what is it that we desire out of the spiritual life? What is it that we are looking for when we're talking about spiritual disciplines and putting them into practice? And so in, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about these uh, acts of or, or practicing your righteousness in chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness. And we could put acts of righteousness here. Because Jesus goes on to talk about three specific 
practices or uh, habits that uh, a righteous person would engage in and that would lead a person to become more righteous. And so he talks about prayer, he talks about fasting, and he talks about giving alms, giving uh, resources to the poor. And as he talks about these acts, these habits, these practices, he wants us to think about, well, why would we engage in such things? What are we looking for out of such things? And would we really be happy if we got out of them what we think we want out of them? And so just listen as Jesus does some teaching here in chapter 6. We'll do two slides here. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward. Notice how often he uses this language from your Father who's in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So Jesus is talking to people who are actively engaged in spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines that should be forming them into righteousness. And he addresses these three specific practices, prayer, giving, and fasting. He talks about the reward that people are hoping to get out of them. The end result they hope to achieve by practicing these habits or these disciplines. And Jesus says, beware. Watch out. You're going to get what you're looking for. You're going to get your reward. But it may be the kind of reward that ultimately is not going to be very fulfilling. And so Jesus, in essence, it boils down to these two ideas here. The kind of reward that people are looking for in their spiritual disciplines. The intention with which they are engaging in these spiritual disciplines boils down to two things. The desire to appear spiritual. So the appearance of spirituality. The appearance of spirituality. And the desire for approval from others. Approval from others. And unfortunately, in Jesus' experience, these are the two perhaps unconscious, perhaps conscious intentions with which people engage in spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices. The appearance, to gain the appearance of spirituality and to get the approval of others. 
So some commentary on those. John Artberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, writes this about approval. We, he says, suffer from approval addiction. We seek a kind of approval from people that can satisfy only when it comes from God. Vast amounts of human behavior, though, though should be though, painstakingly disguised, are simply attempts at showing off. The people in Jesus' day were engaging in spiritual practices and disciplines for this very reason. Approval, addiction. They wanted to be seen by others. And Jesus says in these different translations here, they've received all the reward they'll ever get. Truly, that is all the reward they will ever get. Or truly, that is the only reward they will ever get. So you can pursue spiritual formation to get your approval fixed, but that's all the reward you'll ever get. Meaning, you're not going to be happy with it. Because there's so much more to be gained by engaging in spiritual disciplines. But if you're doing it to get your approval fixed, to get applause from other people, you will get your reward. You'll get the desire of your heart, but you're not going to be happy with it. And then the other and related intention with which people are engaging in spiritual disciplines is the appearance of spirituality. To look like they're spiritual people when, in fact, they aren't. And so John Ortberg writes in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, by and large, we Christians, we churches, do not expect people to experience ongoing transformation. And we settle for what might be called pseudo-transformation. So he's talking about the expectations that we have as churches. And in his experience, we simply don't expect people to be transformed. We, at a practical level, are fine if a person is at exactly the same state they were 20 years ago when they first came to the church. This is, this is his words. I'm not saying it's true here. But this is his experience in churches. We don't expect transformation. And so if, if old Joe, and if your name is Joe, I'm sorry, you know, if, if old Joe is this you know, grumpy, cantankerous, angry, stingy Christian who's, who's been in the church for 30 years, and he's always been that way, we don't think anything of it. That's just old Joe. We don't expect real transformation. Instead, what we become satisfied with is pseudo-transformation. What he means is this. We know that as Christians we're called to come out and be separate, but if we're not marked by greater and greater amounts of love and joy, we will inevitably look for substitute ways of distinguishing ourselves from those who are Christian. We'll look for substitute ways. And he goes on, we adopt boundary markers. These are highly visible, relatively superficial practices, matters of vocabulary or dress or style whose purpose is to distinguish those inside a group and those who are outside. So, in other words, what he's saying is, as churches, we become satisfied with an appearance of spirituality that comes by just making sure people are wearing the right clothes when they come in. They're using the right words when they come in. And they're engaged in the right style of worship when they're here. And he calls those boundary markers. 
Because you can look at those and you can say, okay, they're in. They're spiritual. But if they're not, if they're dressed in a different way, if their language is different than yours, if they're used to a different style, then they're not spiritual. Pseudo-spirituality. This is John Ortberg pushing up against the intentions with which we engage in spiritual disciplines. We become satisfied with the appearance of spirituality. Because you can put on the right clothes, you can speak the right words, you can sit through the right worship and be as far away from God as, as the person who never darkens the door of your church. Right? Appearance of spirituality and approval, addiction. So you can pursue spiritual formation to appear spiritual. But in the end, you'll get the reward you're seeking and you're not going to be happy with it. So notice then how Jesus contrasts these two approaches to spiritual formation and those two intentions. He contrasts them with one word. And it is the word Father. So go back through this. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not be like them for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive their trespasses. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So eight times there, Jesus contrasts on the one hand, spirituality that's driven by approval addiction and satisfaction with the appearance of spirituality with a spirituality that is driven by the desire for a relationship with Father. Eight times, Jesus pulls out this word, Father, to implicitly make His point here. It's not about this. It's all about this. So let's talk a little bit about this word Father that Jesus uses so often here in Matthew chapter 6. There's an author named Joachim Jeremias has a book called The Prayers of Jesus in which he explores the ways in which Jesus prays, the teaching of Jesus on prayer. And he says in, in the Judaism of Jesus' day, it was common for religious groups to have their own unique way of praying. So the Pharisees had their way of praying, the Essenes had their way of praying to religious groups within early Judaism here. The, the disciples of John, John the Baptist, had their own way of praying. Because when the disciples come to Jesus in Luke chapter 11, they say, Jesus, teach us to pray, as, John's, as John taught his disciples to pray. So even, even the disciples of John, according to the custom of the day, had, had their unique way of praying. So these different groups within Judaism, Judaism had a way of praying that kind of set them apart from one another. And so they, the disciples of Jesus come to Him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. So in the custom of the day, they, they want to know, okay, Jesus, we, we want a Jesus prayer. We, we want to learn how to pray 
in a way that's unique to us as followers of Jesus. And we want to learn to pray in a way that's going to set us apart from John's disciples, the Pharisees, the Essenes, because all these groups have their different ways of praying. So Jesus, what's our way of praying? What is, what is unique, Jesus, about our spirituality? What's going to set us apart from all of these other groups, Jesus? Jesus, teach us that prayer. And so here's what Jesus does in response to that question in Luke 11, verse 2. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. The same prayer that he teaches here in Matthew chapter 6. And Jeremiah, Jeremias, difficult time saying his name, says that it was that one word, Father, it's the one word, Father, that sets that prayer apart from all of the prayers in ancient Judaism. That the followers of Jesus would be primarily known as people who relate to God as Father. And that's what's unique about us. That's what's unique about our spirituality. What is unique about our spirituality is that we are the people who relate to the Almighty God as Father. He goes on to indicate that only 15 times is God directly called Father in the Old Testament. There are a lot of times when He's compared to the Father, but directly addressed as Father only 15 times in the Old Testament. In addition, in ancient Palestinian Judaism, God's described as Father in only four passages of the Apocrypha. There are only two prayers in ancient Palestinian Judaism that address God as Father. So it was, it was uh, people knew about this idea that you could call God Father, but they rarely ever did it. Hardly anyone ever did it until Jesus comes along. At least 170 times Jesus uses the word Father to address God, to describe God, to refer to God. If you go through and you look at all the prayers that Jesus prayed, almost every time Jesus Himself addresses God as Father, sometimes using the word Abba, this this intimate word, Abba. And so for Jesus... All of spirituality, all spiritual practices, all spiritual disciplines have this one focus, this one central theme, the nurturing of a relationship with God as Father. It's not about gaining approval from other people. It's not about the appearance of spirituality. It's all about the nurturing of a relationship with God as Father. That's what sets our faith apart from all other faiths. And and that alone is the underlying intention with which we engage in the spiritual life. To learn to interact with God as Father. And that's what we see so often in Jesus. And at the beginning of His ministry, that sort of stamped at the beginning of His ministry in the baptism of Jesus. So in Matthew 3, 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, and you know, imagine all the things that this voice from heaven might say at this moment as Jesus is about to launch out in His public ministry. But the one thing this heavenly voice says is, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well 
pleased. And Henry Nouwen would go on to write a great deal about this, saying that, that this scene and those words are the very core of Christian spirituality. You are God's beloved son. You are God's beloved daughter. And with you, He is well pleased. And, and unless you get that right, unless you get that at the core of who you are, your spiritual life and all of your spiritual practices will ultimately be skewed. This, this is the, the true north. This is the, 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 the ground level for everything. To know at the core of who you are, I am God's beloved Son. And He is well pleased with me. And this is before Jesus goes out and, and does all of the amazing things that Jesus does. Teach all those amazing lessons. Do all these amazing miracles. Before all that, and it, it happens here for a reason, before all that, God says, that's my beloved Son. And with Him I am well pleased. Before He does a thing for me, I am well pleased with Him. And the same is true for you. Before you do anything, before you engage in any spiritual practice, any spiritual habit, before you become the the great uh, person outlined in the Sermon on the Mount, God looks at you. He says, you are my beloved child. And I am so pleased with you. And and the rest of the spiritual life then grows out of that. Not an attempt to get it. We often reverse those two. So often we engage in spiritual practices and and, uh, behaviors in order to get that language from God. God, are you pleased with me now? Are you happy with me now? Can I be your child now? And God says here at the beginning, no, right now, before you do any of that, you are my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. With you, I'm well pleased. And so we engage in the spiritual practices and the spiritual disciplines in order to discover what that relationship's all about, to learn what kind of father this really is, after all. Paul Kalanithi was a surgeon. He wrote this book. It's a memoir, When Breath Becomes Air. He had a stage four cancer metastatic lung cancer, and uh, began to die uh, not long after he began his career as a surgeon. In fact, he died before the book was finished, and uh, his wife and others had to kind of piece together the ending of it. As he's dying of this cancer, his uh, wife is giving birth to their, their first child and, and only child. And so his, his own life is coming to an end and, and their child's life is starting. And, and they have this very brief overlap here. So n- knowing all that, being aware of all that, he writes a letter to his daughter hoping that you know, the letter might help his daughter know who her father was. And, and notice what he writes here. I, I hope I live long enough that she, my daughter, has some memory of me Words have a longevity I do not. I'd thought I could leave her a series of letters, but what would they say? 
I don't know what this girl will be like when she's 15. I don't even know if she'll take to the nickname we've given her. There's perhaps only one thing to say to this infant who is all future, overlapping briefly with me, whose life, barring the improbable, is all but past. And that message is simple. So now he's speaking, writing, writing directly to his daughter, who's an infant. When you come to one of the many moments in life where you must give an account of yourself, provide a ledger of what you've been and done and meant to the world, do not, I pray, discount that you filled a dying man's days with a sated joy, a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, a joy that does not hunger for more and more, but rests satisfied in this time, right now. That is an enormous thing. Can can you hear what he's saying? Here's this father who's only known his daughter as an infant. She's not been able to do a thing for him but cry and dirty diapers and keep him up at night. But even before she could do anything for him, he was filled with joy because of her. Her existence as his child brought him more joy than anything he'd ever known in all of life. Not more than graduating from medical school, more than succeeding as a surgeon, more than meeting his wife. This person who can do nothing brings him unmeasurable joy simply because she exists. And what an image that is of the relationship of father and child. That's what Jesus is getting at when he uses the word father over and over again. This is how God feels about you. Before you've ever done anything for him, before you've proven your worth in any way, your mere existence, just because you are you, and his fingerprints are on you, and his image is in you, just because you're you, he is filled with an unsated joy, with an immeasurable joy. And the spiritual life, spiritual disciplines, are just about exploring that and discovering that in in newer and newer ways. Now, there's one other other image that's not found here in the Sermon on the Mount, but that is uh, very important. What time am I supposed to quit? Eight (laughs) o'clock. What time am I supposed to quit, Doug? Did we start at 5.30? We go to 6.30, right? Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, we're good. Good. So there's another image. You guys are good listeners. Uh, There's another image here that's not found in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, but that is found uh, in Scripture that I think is critical to understanding the intention with which we engage in the spiritual disciplines. And it is uh, the wedding scene. If we take the whole Bible as one story, you notice how the story ends. The story ends with a wedding. Everything in the Bible is pointing towards the ending of the story in the book of Revelation. And and the way that Revelation ends is with a wedding. Of all the images that God could have used to describe the end of the story, um, you know, the image of a judge who looks at you and looks at his records, well, okay, I guess you can come on in. 
But the image that God uses at the end of a story toward which everything is pointed is a wedding. And so note these texts here in Revelation. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Then came the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. The one who desires to take water of life without price. Again and again, the way the story ends is with a wedding. And so if we were to take that story as one story and then ask, well, what, what is the goal? What is the point of all of this? The book of Revelation would argue that the goal is to fall in love. The goal is for the bride to fall in love with the groom. Who's the groom? Christ. Who's the bride? Yeah, we are. Everything in Scripture is pointed towards this romance, this, this love relationship. It's all about falling in love. It's not about getting approval. It's not about the appearance of spirituality. It's all about falling in love. A child falling in love with his or her father. A bride falling in love with the groom. And so this is what James K. Smith writes about in his book, in You Are What You Love. He says, discipleship isn't just about what we think, it's about what we love. Too often when we think about spiritual growth, we, we tend to think about what we think. Well, if we could just get people to think the right things. And so we, we lead them in Bible studies, which is great. But what he's acknowledging here is that discipleship isn't just about what you think. It's also about what you love. That's why the story ends with the scene of a wedding. That's why Jesus uses the image of God as Father. Because God's not just interested in what James K.A. Smith calls brains on sticks. And, and too many times that's what churches produce. They, choose, they produce brains on sticks. People who are able to think exactly the right things, but whose hearts are never truly engaged. What Jesus is after are people whose hearts are also engaged. Children falling in love with the Father, bride falling in love with the groom. He said, discipleship is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. This is all about falling in love. It's all about what you love. And so that brings us back to something that really the contemporary church has not always done very well with, but which the early church uh, really majored in, when you begin to read some of the mystics of the early church, uh, this is the one thing they write about over and over again. The people who sort of dedicated themselves to exploring, well, what does it really mean to have a, a relationship with God? What is this all about? Again and again, you find them writing about love and romance and falling in love with God. So just a couple of examples here. Julian of Norwich was uh, an English ascetic. She was devoted to prayer and giving spiritual counsel to people. She wrote a book called Revelations of Divine Love. 
back in the 1300s. It was one of the first books ever written by a woman in the English language. And as she reflected on what is the spiritual life all about, here's some of the things that she said. When I was 30 years old and a half, God sent me a bodily sickness in which I lay three days and three nights. And, and this was a kind of an important turning point in her life. On the third night, I expected to have passed away. So she's very sick. And still being in youth, I thought it a great sadness to die. Not for anything that was on earth that pleased me to live for, nor for any pain that I was afraid of, for I trusted in God of His mercy, but because I would have liked to have lived so that I could have loved God better and for a longer time. That's pretty powerful. She didn't want to die because she wanted to have more opportunity here. Of course, she would get it in heaven too. But more opportunity here to learn what it's like to love God better. She keeps writing about this. I saw that He, God, He is everything that is good and comfortable for us. He is our clothing which for love enwraps us, holds us, and all encloses us because of His tender love so that He may never leave us. And so in the showing, I saw that He is to us everything that is good as I understood it. As she thought about God, she thought of Him as, as the clothing that wraps itself around her. That's how close God was to her. Just a little more language here. God wishes to be known and He delights that we remain in Him because all that, all that is less than He is not enough for us. All that is less than He is not enough for us. See, this is, this is an echo of what Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 6. Don't settle for the less. Approval addiction. Appearance of spirituality. Because it will not be enough for you. Only knowing God as Father. Christ as, as groom will be enough for you. And this is the reason why no soul is at rest until it is emptied of everything that is created. When the soul is willingly emptied for love in order to have Him who is all, then it is able to receive spiritual rest. I think last one here. For truly our lover desires that our soul cleave to Him with all its might. So Julian of Norwich, she's writing about the spiritual life, over and over again, the language that she uses is this language of romance. This language of falling in love. Sorry, German poet here named Rainer, Rainer Rilke. Rainer Rilke. This is back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, he takes a trip to Russia uh, with a woman that he's fallen in love with. Writes... Some poems after he gets back, writes 67 poems. 1900, takes a, another trip to Russia, comes back, writes some more poems. Takes a trip to Italy in 1903, comes back and writes more poems. And all these poems are collected in what's called Rilke's Book of Hours. Love poems to God. Love poems to God. And, and the poems are filled with this rich language of love for God. So he writes, I yearn to be held in the great hands of of your heart. Isn't that great language? I yearn to be held in the great hands of your heart. Oh, let them take me now. Into them I place these fragments, my life, and you, God, spend them however you want. I just want to be held with the hands of your heart. This is how he envisioned God. 
Extinguish my eyes, I'll go on seeing you. Seal my ears, I'll go on hearing you. And without feet, I can make my way to you. Without a mouth, I can swear your name. Break off my arms, I'll take hold of you with my heart as with a hand. Stop my heart, and my brain will start to beat. And if you consume my brain with fire, I'll feel you burn in every drop of my blood. This guy is serious. He is not about superficial spirituality. This, this is a man in love with God. Pedro Arupi, a Jesuit, wrote a poem, kind of summarizes this. It says, Nothing is more practical than finding God than falling in love in a quite absolute way. Absolute final way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination, will affect everything. What you're in love with will affect everything. It'll decide what will get you out of bed in the morning. What you do with your evenings. How you spend your weekends. What you read. Whom you know. What breaks your heart. What amazes you with joy and gratitude. So, fall in love. Stay in love. And it will decide everything. That's, that's the key to the Christian life. That's what it all boils down to. If you, if, you can, if you can truly fall in love with Christ, with God, you're set. Because that will decide everything else for you. And that's what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 6. So the question is, well, how do we, how do we get there? How do we fall in love with God. Could, could we ever get to the point where we're, we're the ones writing love poems to God? James K. Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, says you can't get there by thinking. You can't think your way into love. If, if, if you've ever fallen in love with someone, you probably didn't arrive there by just sort of forcing yourself to think. I'm going to love this girl. I will love this girl. Probably, probably didn't work that way. And the same is true with God and Jesus. You can fill your head with all the right things and all the right knowledge about them that, that still may not translate into falling in love. What you have to do, he says, is you have, to, you have to change your hunger. You have to change what you love. And so he talks about his own physical hunger. He's, he's a meat and potatoes and chocolate guy. This is my kind of guy. Meat and potatoes, if they're around, if they're not around, then chocolate. Yes, amen. But that's not a great diet. And so he reached the point where his, chain, his, his mind was changing, his thinking was changing. He began to think, I need fruits and vegetables. I don't want them. I don't like them. But I, I know intellectually that I need them. So his thinking alone couldn't change his hunger. So what he did is he began to adopt small habits that over time ultimately changed his hunger. So every once in a while he added a salad in, a little less meat and potatoes, a little more salad. Little fruits and vegetables every now and then instead of the chocolate. And what he found was that over a long period of time, as he made those small changes, his hunger actually changed as well. He began 
to desire fruits and vegetables. He began to desire salad. I know it sounds like impossible, right? But it actually is possible. You can change your hunger. And the same thing is true spiritually. You can adopt small practices and habits that will change your hunger. We have to adapt habits that slowly change our hunger over time. And that's what the spiritual disciplines are. One of the reasons that we engage in spiritual disciplines is their small ways of changing what we love, changing what we hunger for. You spend 10 minutes a day in prayer, and over the course of a year, you'll find that you hunger for God more than you did at the beginning. And you hunger for greater times of prayer than you did at the beginning. The spiritual disciplines simply help us fall in love and stay in love. One last story here. Marilyn Robinson is the author of a book called Gilead. It's a fictional story of Reverend John Ames. He's ministering in a small church in Gilead, Iowa. He's dying of a heart condition. All these people dying. He's dying of a heart condition. He's got a, th- a seven-year-old son. And so he, he starts writing letters in the novel to his son, primarily to help his son understand what an amazing miracle he is. And here's, here's one of the letters that is written in the novel. It says, I'd never have believed I'd see a wife of mine doting on a child of mine. It still amazes me every time I think of it. I'm writing this in part to tell you that if you ever wonder what you've done in your life, and everyone does wonder, sooner or later, you have been God's grace to me. A miracle. Something more than a miracle. You may not remember me very well at all. And it may seem to you to be no great thing to have been the good child of an old man in a shabby little town you will no doubt leave behind. If I only had the words to tell you, it's your existence I love you for, mainly. Existence seems to me now the most remarkable thing that could ever be imagined. That's that's how a father feels about his seven-year-old child. This, This is how God feels about you. Your mere existence is like a miracle. It's the most remarkable thing that could ever be imagined. And the spiritual disciplines are just a way of stepping, stepping in to that. So, well, we're going to take a few minutes to do a discipline that leans in that direction. In the book, I, I put spiritual, I put uh, celebration in uh, the section with possessions, but uh, we're going to practice it here uh, as part of piety. Okay, so celebration, giving thanks to God, giving praise to God, awakens us to. What a remarkably generous Father. What a more remarkably loving Father we have. And it's not just giving thanks for you know, the big things like Jesus on the cross. It's also learning to celebrate the smallest things of all. And Voskamp writes about this in one of her books. She had lost her sister and, and the whole family was in deep grieving. And at one point in the midst of all that grief, and Voskamp decided that probably the only way out of it was to learn to give thanks again. And so she set this huge goal. She said, I want to celebrate 
1,000 specific things. That's going to be my spiritual discipline. I want to celebrate 1,000 specific things. And so she, she celebrated very big things, extraordinary things, but she also celebrated little things like grated cheese. So she writes this in her book, When my husband comes in from the barn, he finds me leaning over a plate of cheese, grated, and sitting in the sunlight. It's quite possible that the the God glory of a ring of shredded cheese may be lost on him. It isn't. He says, "I, I like finding you like this. Crazy like this? I blush silliness. Perfect like this, he says. You being happy in all these little things that God gives. Ridiculously happy over slips of cheese. That I am. And it's wild. And oh, I am the one who laughs. Me, changed, surprised by joy. So celebration is a spiritual discipline where we learn to celebrate even grated cheese. Because as we do, we come to learn what an amazingly generous father and loving father we have. Brian Doyle has a book called The Book of Uncommon Prayer where he writes thanksgiving for ordinary and and mundane things. Uh, He includes cashiers, cashiers in this. Um, I'm going to step up and read this because I know you can't, can't read it. So this is a prayer for cashiers and checkout counter folks. Who endure the cold swirls of winter from the sliding doors that are opening and closing every 40 seconds. Who endure the pomposity and buffoonery and minor madness in their customers. Who gently help the shuffling old lady in the ancient camel coat count out the right change for her loaf of bread and a single sad can of cat food. And cheerfully also disperse stamps and cash along with bagging the groceries and even occasionally carting them out swiftly to the customers they know are frail and wobbly, and who must sometimes silently want to scream and shriek in weariness and wondering how it is that they're here for eight hours at a stretch, and who do their jobs with patience and diligence, knowing the price of every single blessed thing in the store, and who ask after children and the ill among the families of their customers with honest interest and concern. And on and on he goes. But there's even learning to celebrate cashiers that's part of this discipline. Dietrich Bonhoeffer died in the Second World War as a result of the Nazi regime, strong Christian leader. And uh, he writes this about celebration. Only he who gives thanks for little things receives the big things. We prevent God from giving us the great spiritual gifts he has in store for us because we don't give thanks for daily gifts. We pray for the big things and forget to give thanks to the ordinary, small, and yet really not small gifts. How can God entrust great things to one who will not thankfully receive from him, from him the little things? And so celebration is a spiritual discipline where we practice giving thanks for all things. The ordinary, the extraordinary, the mundane, the magic, the big, the little. And the more that we do that, the more we fall in love with God. So I want to ask you to take a few minutes right now and, and practice this spiritual discipline. Okay, so you've got room in your, your booklet where you can do this. I want to encourage you to pull out a pen and uh, do these three things. Okay, we're going to do them right now. So jot down a list, three or four ordinary objects, events, or circumstances. Don't, don't go for the big things, the easy stuff that's easy to give thanks for. Write down three or four of the most ordinary things, circumstances, people, events, whatever, in your life. And then secondly, look over that list and choose just one of them 
And third, write a prayer of thanks. Could be just a couple lines, could be a whole paragraph. But we're going to give you a few minutes to do that.